Hey, before we get into this episode today, I just wanted to let you know that we would greatly appreciate if you liked, subscribed, left a review, five stars, five testicles, whatever you want to call them on this podcast. That will help this podcast rank higher in search results so that in the future, anybody who's searching for resources when they've just been diagnosed or have just become a survivor or is a caregiver, they can find this podcast more easily and listen to your stories. Thank you so much. And let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Welcome back to It Takes Balls, presented by Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. Today, I'm joined by someone who is my personal hero, and he's also an associate professor of urology at IU Health. Um, Dr. Clint Carey is joining me today. Dr. Carey, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Uh, as usual, always happy to uh, be involved and, and uh help out as much as I can. So uh, thanks for having me. Before we get into these questions from the testicular cancer support group, would you please give a, a description of what the RPLND is? Sure. So um, as you know, it stands for uh, <clears throat> retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. Um, that describes the location uh, of where these are. So the retroperitoneum is just the space in the body that is uh, if you think about your abdomen, um, so if you go through the front part of, of your abdominal wall, the first thing is your intestines, and then behind your intestines is the aorta and vena cava, which is the large blood vessels that run north and south in our abdomen. And there's lymph nodes all around those uh, blood vessels uh, as part of the lymphatic system. And uh, testicular cancer, when it uh, gets outside the testicle, one of the first places it goes is into these lymph nodes around these blood vessels. Um, and so uh, that kind of describes the term retroperitoneal is the space around the, the aorta and vena cava. And lymph node dissection just means you're removing the lymph nodes um, uh, in that location. So you're basically removing the, the, uh, the lymph nodes that either you know they have cancer in them or potentially may have cancer in them um, uh, as part of the surgery. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Carey, as I mentioned, works at um, IU, and IU is a high-volume center for these surgeries. Why is it important for somebody to go to a high-volume center with the retroperitoneal lymph node dissection? Yeah, that's a good question, um, <clears throat> and I'll give you uh, a long-winded answer for it. Uh, so just to finish the thought about the, the surgery um, and description of it, when you're doing the operation, it, it's, not, it's not a sampling of those lymph nodes. Um, you have to completely remove the lymph nodes uh, in this area. You can't just either pluck out the abnormal ones or just remove a certain um, small amount of them. You have to thoroughly do it. Um, otherwise the chances of recurrence, uh, and the chances of the, the operation being curative or, uh, chances of recurrence are high and those chances of the surgery being curative would be low. Um, that's one of the reasons why it's important to have this operation done at a high volume center by someone who does this frequently. Um, uh, the, the other important thing to, to remember is that this actually is not a common operation. So the average urologist never does this operation. Um, there's only roughly 10,000 people in the United States that get diagnosed with this every year. The vast majority of those never need this surgery. And so if you think about those numbers, just the amount of people getting diagnosed and compare them to other common cancers we all hear about like breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, there are hundreds of thousands of those people that get diagnosed a year. And so getting surgery for breast cancer or colon cancer or prostate cancer is very common for those surgical specialists. Um, this operation for testis cancer is not a very common surgery. And, um, and so there's not a lot of uh, people around the country that, that are able to do this in a high volume setting because there's just not that many that, that fortunately need to be done. For kind of fortunately, unfortunately, depending on how you look at it. Um, and like we talked about the, how you do this operation is very important. Number one, these are these, the surgeries around these major blood vessels in the abdomen that we talked about, the aorta and vena cava. Um, number two, 
how you do this matters, meaning that um, you can't just sample some lymph nodes. You have to completely have everything removed. So you're talking about op- operating around big blood vessels that a lot of people never operate around frequently, and you have to remove everything around those blood vessels. So it's, it sets up a, a perfect scenario for you know, potential bad things that can happen if, if you're, uh, if you're not having it done in a place that, that does this with some frequency. Um, I have a lot of questions from the testicular cancer support group. So if that's okay, I'll start asking the first one. That sounds great. All right. So this first question, he says, after a May, 2018 CT revealed an enlarged lymph node growing near my aorta, my local urologist suspected teratoma as it was the primary cell type for my orchiectomy in January of 2017, non-seminoma germ cell tumor. Also, tumor markers were negative during relapse. I was referred to doctors at UVA who wanted me to have a robotic RPLND as the relapse cancer was small contained growth. I had an eight-hour robotic RPLND in December of 2018. They removed 70 lymph nodes and three nodes came back positive for pure seminoma. This perplexed my doctors, and because of bizarre outcome, I was also treated with two rounds of atopicide and cisplatin to possibly kill any remaining cancer cells still in my body. So his question is, how effective is RPLND surgery in successfully eliminating pure seminoma when traditionally this type of testicular cancer is almost always treated with chemotherapy or radiation therapy? This is where... Um uh, here at Indiana, we, we deviate a little bit. Um, when we do these operations, um, for, and it sounds like it was reasonable if his markers were negative, he has small, uh, recurrence in the retroperitoneum to undergo an RPLND. We do these operations with curative intent. And so we know, or we suspect that if somebody relapses while on surveillance, even if their markers are negative, there's still a very reasonable chance that there will be, uh, active cancer like seminoma or embryonocarcinoma or yolk sac tumor, uh, and sometimes teratoma. Um, uh, so we know we're going to find one of those, one of those elements when we're doing surgery, our goal is to cure you with surgery alone. Um, and in fact, we're, we've actually just been accepted uh, publication about this exact question, um, doing surgery in this scenario and actually not treating patients with chemotherapy. If you look at the guidelines, uh, it'll say if you have uh, what's described as N2 disease, so that's lymph nodes that are greater than two centimeters, but less than five centimeters uh, on the pathology report, that the the nccn recommends getting two cycles of chemotherapy Um, at indiana we have not been doing that for a long time Um, and we're we're getting it we just got accepted a paper to uh, present in a a very large uh, oncology journal to to prove that you don't really need to do that Um, so i would say that what what happened for this patient uh, is very reasonable and appropriate uh, he's getting currently what the guidelines would recommend. It's not what we would do at Indiana, but we've been doing things a little differently. We try to, um, as you know, we try to lead the field and, and come up with things that continue to kind of push the envelope to improve care, not only in the present term, but long term uh, for patients that are going to survive to try to avoid chemotherapy when we can by doing a very thorough and complete operation. Gotcha. Somebody says, it seems many doctors don't adequately adequately explain RPLND as an option and the benefits of doing it over chemo as a frontline of treatment. Is this simply a function of most urologists and oncologists not having the ability to perform the surgery or a ready network of doctors to refer to for this? How do we change this? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, <clears throat> I think that's exactly why um, is that um, the either medical oncologists um, uh, don't understand maybe the value of surgery where they can potentially avoid chemotherapy um, or maybe they don't have urologists that, that they can refer their patients to that, that can do this operation or have experience doing this operation. So it's, it's a little, it's a combination of factors, I would say, um, I think um, 
I think you're you're trying to do some of the things, bringing awareness to this, um, and the importance of the operation and and what the operation can do. Um, <clears throat> I think there's obviously some some larger healthcare system uh, factors that come into play too, insurance coverage and 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 things like that. I mean, we uh, are uh, fighting constantly with insurance companies to let patients that do try to come to us get to us and we have our, our assistants in our department that are constantly working on insurances and, and things like that to get people to come, come from around the country. Um, so there's a bit of that. Uh, we're actually <clears throat> here in the process in Indiana of trying to, uh, help with that insurance battle by, by talking directly with large insurers around the country to make that process a little easier. Um, and, and help actually those insurance companies understand why patients want to come here uh, and why don't they just want to go down the street to their local doctors and try to get them just like we talked about why, why it's important. Um, so it's a complicated issue. I think raising awareness, what, what you're trying to do here and what I know uh, TCAF is, is trying to do. I think those are uh, every little thing helps and that certainly helps. And it's, um, uh, something that, you know, we just got to continue to work on and get the, uh, word out. And, and, uh, also, but also I think it is important for us on our end to, uh, try to, uh, make inroads with the larger insurers and, and how the healthcare system works too. Yeah. If you guys could, I mean, anybody who can help the insurance kind of understand, like you said, that would be amazing. Yeah. And, and I've, I've actually, I have some experience with talking with medical directors that some of the some of the smaller uh, healthcare plans like uh, that are state-based uh, rather than some of the larger ones that everybody knows like Anthem and uh, United Healthcare and some of those. Um, but some of the smaller ones, they, um, uh, I've talked to some of the medical directors and explained some of these exact things we've talked about and they, uh, they don't quite, they just don't understand. It doesn't happen very often uh, for these, for these people that they're covering and um you know, their, their view is try to keep things in, in their system, not understanding they, they may actually pay more money by keeping it in the system versus letting them come to Indiana, for example, where we know what your hospital length of stay is going to be. We know the complications are going to be low uh, and they may wind up paying less in the long run, but they, they have a hard time looking at it through that lens. So, um, so we, you know, like we said, we got to continue to try to educate everyone. Yeah, well, hopefully that that change happens. The next question is about robotic. Um, somebody says, what are we seeing these days in terms of open versus robotic assisted? Is one preferred based on where we are at today, both in terms of effectiveness and getting all the potentially cancerous cells, but also in terms of complications and recovery? Yeah, <clears throat> it's it's been a, a question that's been... I mean, listen, the first robotic RPLND was done in 2006. Um, and, or at least the first one that was published about. Um, and so here we are, you know, 15 years later and, and we still don't have a lot of evidence, uh, in this regard. Um, some, some of this is for the same factors. I mean, you're doing things robotically. It's, it's a little different than how the rest of urology has gone with, um, removing organs like prostates and, 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 uh, kidneys and things like that. You're not operating around these great vessels. Um, and so some of those risks are a little different. Um, I, I think, uh, um, there's certainly interest in it. Uh, I, we haven't had a large, um, appetite for it in Indiana. It's, we have a little different perspective. We obviously get sent a lot of uh, patients, uh, of all sorts, whether they have stage one disease or, or stage three disease. Um, we also get sent patients that have had an attempt at robotic surgery and bad things have happened. And we've published on a small group of those patients. And, um, uh, one of the reasons why I personally haven't done, I do some robotic surgery for other cancers. Uh, I haven't, uh, done it for this one is some of those experiences. I mean, looking at these young guys that have had these bad things happen to them and, and um, sometimes it's been hard to 
salvage them either with additional surgery or additional chemotherapy and some of the side effects they have to suffer by going through repeat surgeries or repeat chemotherapy. Um, I gotta say, well, for me personally is the, is the, um, smaller incision and maybe a one day and, and at least in our experience, maybe a one day less hospital stay, um, is it worth that small risk that some of those things can happen? And I, I've had a hard time rationalizing it being worth that risk. Um, depends on, um, you know, how comfortable people are. Maybe some people aren't comfortable doing it open. Um, I just think that this, this surgery has a lot of, um, like I said, how you do it matters. Um, I think if we can, consistently show that that um it's safe then then maybe we should try it i just don't know if these small events you could say that they're small events but to the person that it happens to it's life altering Mm -hmm. um and so for some uh, smaller incisions and a day less hospital stay i just don't know if that upside is worth the risk Uh, uh, i think if you ask all those people that have come here for us they would say, no, it hasn't been worth the risk. Um, you know, that being said, there's going to be plenty of clinical stage one patients that have a robotic surgery that their lymph nodes are negative. So they're not going to be harmed by having the surgery. Um, but it's almost one of those things where you don't, you don't know it until it's already happened. Um, so, um, it's also another, like, again, it gets back to the volume issue. And so, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not a common surgery to have to get that large experience with robotically. Um, there's interest in it. I, I understand that. I just, um, because we do so many of them open our, our complications and things are just not as high. Um, and so I just haven't seen a big, um, um, increase. I mean, I don't know. I'm happy to learn and hear more from a patient perspective, about things, but, uh, it just, from a risk perspective, even if it is small that we published on it for those patients that happens to it is, it is devastating. And it's hard to say I could have done your surgery open and, and this most likely would not have happened. It's just, it's hard to, hard to rationalize for me, but I'm always happy to, to hear people out and hear other opinions. Yeah. So, I mean, the next question kind of was similar. It said, my doctor does a high volume of open ones, but doesn't do robotic at all. If I were to need it, is that okay? Would you roll with your doctor and their preferred preferred method? So it sounds like you are really a champion of the open. And I guess, you know, if, if this guy, whoever he is, his doctor is not at a high volume center, then you would want him to go somewhere that knows what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, um, I mean, I mean, let's be clear, robotic RPLD is not the standard of care. Um, and so, I mean, the NCCN guidelines actually say that that's largely based on that paper that we put out showing that there, there are some devastating things that, that can happen. Um, um, and, and so, I mean, open RPLD is, is still currently standard of care. There's, if you look at the body of evidence, there's, there's a lot more data in open surgery. There's, there's, you know, certainly people that are trying to gain that data from the robotic side of things, but it, it's still not there yet. It's still not standard of care, um, uh, from a, uh, from an overall standpoint. So if somebody has most experience doing it open and, and that's, that's what I would do. You mentioned staging. So this next question says, if you choose surveillance for stage one non-seminoma and have recurrence, is RPLND as primary slash only treatment available? And then they said, I understand you may also need chemo if tumor markers or scans dictate elevated levels of, or remaining masses. Yeah. So if you're on surveillance for clinical stage one um, and you have a relapse, you know, if you look, so uh, uh, University of Toronto um, put a nice series out in JCO um, not that long ago, uh, describing some of this. And if I recall correctly about people on surveillance that had, that had, um, relapsed about 60, roughly 60 some percent of them got chemotherapy and about a third of them were able to be treated with, with surgery. And so usually if your markers are elevating, you're going to, you're going to 
uh, it's better suited to get chemotherapy. If you have a relapse on CT scan with negative markers and it's, you know, an isolated lymph node uh, in the primary landing zone, then, then uh, surgery is still reasonable. And at least here in Indiana, we would plan to do surgery with a curative intent and not give you chemotherapy unless, of course, the pathology report showed something unusual or surprising or something like that. That kind of leads itself to this next question. They said, how do you guide patients when they're choosing between chemo and RPLND? Both sound terrible. Is RPLND preferred to avoid toxicity, or is there a concern that it's less likely than chemo to eliminate all of the cancer and prevent ever having a recurrence? Uh, yeah, so it's, it's um, um, you know, obviously it depends on the exact stage and kind of what the CT scan looks like. Um at least here in Indiana for 2A disease, we're going to offer RPLND for everybody um, for the most part. <clears throat> there are 2B patients that we also operate on. Um, your, it really comes down to your CT scan in that scenario. Um, um, obviously, your markers need to be negative for these kind of things as well. Um, we, we tend to offer surgery quite frequently. And our medical oncologists, obviously here at Indiana, we have Dr. Larry Einhorn, who's uh, obviously world renowned for this. And he's a big believer in, in surgery for the correct patients. Um, and, and also Nabil Adra and, and uh, Nasser Hanna are the two other medical oncologists here that, that also know the value of surgery. And so uh, 2A and, and, uh, the correct, correctly selected 2B patients, we're going to offer surgery almost always uh, with negative markers. Uh, the reason for that is, is we think we can cure a very high percentage of those patients. Um, um, and, and the benefit of that is that you avoid chemotherapy. And the benefit of avoiding chemotherapy is those long-term side effects uh, that that are be becoming more and more reported on secondary cancers that can develop metabolic syndrome, uh, high blood pressure, cardiovascular diseases. We're learning more about, you know, other things, depression, anxiety, and, and, um, and things like that that can come along with, with chemotherapy. Um, and so for patients that we think we have a good chance of curing with surgery, we're going to offer you surgery with the, with the goal of never giving you chemotherapy for those benefits that we can avoid chemotherapy and some of those things we've talked about for, um, uh, for patients with rising markers or, um, a little bit more bulky or two B disease. So lymph nodes that are three, four, uh, centimeters, maybe you have multiple lymph nodes that are three or four centimeters that, that we know that surgery is going to be less likely to cure you or certainly to see patients, you get higher than greater than five centimeter lymph nodes. Uh, we're not as likely to cure you with surgery. Um, we would, we would recommend chemotherapy. You're going to be cured with chemotherapy. You're going to be exposed to some of those long-term side effects, but <clears throat> that, that is what, that is what you got to do to be cured. Um, so you have to, you know, it's kind of quote unquote, the burden of cure in that, in that situation. Um, so I would look at it as, you know, it, it, uh, you know, chemotherapy is something that's, it's very successful. It's very curative. Um, we try to avoid it when we can. And I think, um, you know, having the experience of Larry Einhorn here who understands the value of chemotherapy, but also understands he wants to avoid it when he can, uh, and do surgery on the right patients, I think is, uh, something to always, uh, you always have to consider. So anecdotally, for anybody listening that doesn't know, I was 2B. I was treated with etoposide cisplatin. I had a post-chemo retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, and that is because my lymph node in my abdomen had shrunk, but not enough. And we emailed Dr. Einhorn, who still recommended the RPLND, and then that's how I was referred to you. Um, so that's just, um, and mine ended up being scar tissue, and there's no way to know before doing it right yeah <clears throat> so that um you you may you may have a question around that but I'll, I'll speak to that a little bit um unless you have a do you have a specific question about that no you just mentioned dr einhorn so i was yeah yeah uh, <clears throat> yeah so that's right so if your ct scan doesn't normalize after chemotherapy um uh and you have a residual mass then we um 
everyone would recommend um, a post-chemotherapy retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. Uh, the reason being is that it's what's left in that residual mass is going to be one of three things. It's just going to be scar tissue. Uh, second thing, it could be, be teratoma. Uh, this is assuming we're dealing with non-seminoma uh, germ cell tumors. Uh, and the third thing it could be is still some residual active cancer, whatever was in the testicle, either um, uh, embryonal carcinoma or yolk sac tumor or something like that, choriocarcinoma. Um um, we don't have a lot of great ways to predict what's going to be in that lymph node. Uh, there, there are some factors you can, um, use. Nothing's a hundred percent accurate. There's some new, um, uh, biomarkers that are still in the process of being worked out. We, we think that there is one, particularly with seeing if there's residual cancer, um, in that lymph node that's still in the research phase. There's a lot of buzz about it. Uh, about a year or two ago, uh, it's called microRNA three seven one. That's a blood test. Um, it started out to be very predictive. Um, there's been some subsequent studies where it, it's maybe not as predictive as we first thought it was. Uh, they're still trying to figure out how to do that assay uh, correctly. Um, so it's it's still a promising biomarker. There's still some work that needs to be done. It's going to be incorporated into some upcoming. Uh, and actually ongoing trials right now. Um, so that could be a little bit helpful. Um, we haven't figured out a great biomarker yet for the teratoma component. There's still some, there's some work that still needs to be done there as well. Um, so we're trying to get better at predicting um, what's going to be in those leftover lymph nodes after chemotherapy. Obviously the ideal scenario is, if we can predict at least it's going to be scar tissue and you never have to have surgery, that would be a big win. Um, would be a, it'd been a big win for you, for example. Um, um, we're not quite there yet. We're working on it. The field's working on it. Um, and so we'll, we'll see what the next, it's going to take some time. I mean, it's, we'll see what the next five years is going to show. And if anybody's out there in the same kind of situation I was in, I do not regret getting it knowing that it was, scar tissue because it just gives peace of mind knowing that it's whatever it was, it's gone. So the next question, um, why would a patient need a second or third RPL and D? I thought a full template meant all lymph nodes were removed. So if they were, then why would they have to repeat this invasive surgery besides the obvious, if the tumor markers are elevated and CT scans are positive, do tumors regrow in that area, even when there is no lymph node for them to attach to yeah, so it's, it's a little hard to answer that without all the context. Um, um, several things could be, uh, could help explain that. Um, there can be things called late relapses. Um, that can happen years after you had chemotherapy and an RPL and D. Um, uh, uh, and even despite having an RPL and D that, that they can have their late relapses can occur. Um, I just operated on someone recently who, uh, had a relapse 20 years after their diagnosis. Um, and after they were cured, uh, that's not very common. Um, but, but that can happen. Um, there, um, can be uh, inappropriate selection of using a template, maybe where a lymph node grows on the opposite side. Say you had a unilateral template and and it recurred on the other side. If patients are selected appropriately, that that also is a rare event. Um, in our in our data with non-seminoma, that happens about one 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 percent of the time. So a rare event. Um, if you have a bilateral template um, and you have a, an early recurrence, um, it could get back to that experience factor that we were talking about at the early part of this segment. Um, uh, and, and the importance of going to a high volume center. Um, uh, again, there, so there's several reasons. It's, you know, without all the context, it's a little bit um, hard to know. There are some people that just... Um, They've, uh, they, they have, uh, continue to have late relapses and, um, 
it's, it's, uh, so it's, it's kind of patient specific. Um, it, it does happen. Sometimes it's technical. They didn't have a good operon D at the first setting. Uh, sometimes it's biology of the disease with a late relapse. Um, hard to know, but there's many, many possibilities. The next question is, is it common for a testicular cancer tumor like yolk sac to rupture during RPLND surgery? Um, anything can happen in surgery, right? Um, you know, I think, uh, I wouldn't say it's common. Um, I think also this gets back to experience. Uh, if you said, you know, do things, are we perfect in Indiana? No way in the world. Um, do we have, um, you know, you know, we have things happen here at Indiana that, that, um, are either bad luck or we have complications. Um, do those things happen less often here because of the high volume? I'd say probably so. They probably often, they happen less often. Um, so I wouldn't say it's common to, to have, uh, specifically a yolk sac tumor rupture, but certainly things, things can happen. This one's not on the, on the paper I have, but a, um, when people talk about getting a biopsy of a cancer, is it true that the biopsy could cause a rupture of the tumor and then that could cause it to spread? Or is that a kind of a myth? Um, I mean, if we talk about in general, just cancer biopsies in general, uh, there, there is a, I think a patient, uh, perception young or old that you can't biopsy something, you can't biopsy a tumor, it'll cause it to spread. And that, that probably happened more, um, decades ago when, when, you know, from a radiology perspective, we didn't have all the techniques and technology that, that the radiologists do now to do these percutaneous biopsies. And so there probably was some spread of, of cancer, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, or at least when they first were doing like percutaneous type biopsies. Um, you know, we biopsy things all the time now for diagnoses, whether it's kidney cancer, prostate cancers, um, colon cancers, you know, all different types of things get biopsied um, percutaneously. Uh, and we, we don't see that happen a lot. So, and, and there's some, um, the patient I just talked about with a late relapse, he had a percutaneous biopsy because, you know, it was 20 years later, so they didn't really know what was going on. Um, so they biopsied it percutaneously and, and there was no ill effects of that. Um, so percutaneous biopsies, I think by and large are, are, are safe. Um, by today's standards. I don't know what that, what percutaneous means. So I'm going to assume people listening don't. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. Thank you for that. Um, um, sometimes we get lost in our jargon a little bit. So, um, <laughs> that just means, um, a needle just goes through the scan. Like say you have an abdominal mass or a big retroperitoneal lymph node. Um, the radiologist just gets that area of the skin numbed up. Um, and puts a needle in under either ultrasound guidance or through a CT guidance um, technique to direct it right into the abnormal lymph node or mass or whatever uh, to get samples of the tissue. Um, it's an outpatient procedure, usually just either local sedation or maybe sometimes a little bit of conscious sedation or something like that, but it's kind of like an outpatient procedure. It's just a fancy word for um, uh, you don't have to be cut open. Uh, and they use the needle to just go directly through the skin. Thank you. <laughs> um, the next question, what does necrotic mean with regard to testicular cancer, abdominal tumors, namely yolk sac? Yes. Yeah, so, um, again, this person probably had a very specific, um, point here, but I would say in general, um, so we throw around these terms interchangeably necrotic, um, fibrosis, scar tissue, um, those are kind of all similar things to describe basically dead treated cancer cells. Um, usually you're going to find that scenario in the, in the post chemotherapy setting. Um, um, you know, sometimes tumors will grow fast enough where they kind of 
<clears throat> outgrow their blood supply and some of the tissue around that cancer kind of loses its blood supply and dies off. And so you can have some necrosis around an active cancer. So um, if the pathology report that this person maybe um, uh, is describing, um, maybe they had a yolk sac tumor removed that also describes some necrosis around it. That could either be from that phenomenon or from a, a combination of chemotherapy killed off some of the yolk sac tumor and, and made it become necrotic, aka fibrotic, or aka scar tissue, in addition to maybe some persistent yolk sac tumor. Interesting. The next one says it'd be nice to know what the incidence is, what the incidence of RPLND is globally. I know the majority of people on here are in the U.S., but I'd ra- I rarely hear about the surgery be- being conducted outside the U.S. as a treatment option. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, global incidents, I, I am not aware of. Um, I mean, there are centers that do this frequently outside the U.S. There's, um, I, I think England has done a good job of trying to centralize their testis cancer care. Um, uh, I think Germany... Uh, has some centers of excellence um, uh, that I know sometimes patients overseas will email us about uh, and they may not necessarily be able to come to the U.S. So sometimes we will actually, uh, we know one of the surgeons in Germany actually did spend some of his training here at Indiana. So um, we know him in, in that program well, and sometimes we direct them there to stay in Europe, uh, depending on where they are. Um but as far as the incidence goes, I, I, I don't know. I think um, uh, it, it's my guess is that it's probably similar to some of the things we talked about where um, chemotherapy is given again, because it's still not, a, it's not a common operation, right? Even if you're in Europe, it's still not going to be a common operation. So um, my guess is that maybe for some stage two a or two B patients that, that we would offer surgery for here, uh, are getting chemotherapy, just like in certain parts of the U S they're getting chemotherapy where they're not offered surgery. This next question says, why do some centers require low fat diet while others do not? Shouldn't there be a standard across the board? Some places say no nuts slash popcorn for a year after others do not. The difference in diet recommendations really makes one question if they're doing the right thing for themselves or their loved one post surgery. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll answer this a couple of ways. I, I don't, uh, um, I, I think we could just from a nutrition standpoint in general, uh, in the, in the U S I think just education about nutrition is something that is needed. Um, you know, as Americans, we don't get any education about how to eat well. Um, and so, um, I'll say that to start, um, uh, the, you know, again, this, this all comes back to these kind of common themes we've been talking about. Right. So this, again, this, uh, you could probably just play one segment of me saying this and just <laughs> play it over and over, but this, is, it, this is not a common operation. Um, and so, you know, some people are doing this, small numbers of times a year. And some people are doing this lots of times a year. And so you get a variety of opinions, uh, based on a variety of experiences. Um, um, you know, I, I think all the centers around this risk of chyla societies, right. Which is a fancy medical word for, um, lymphatic fluid can build up in your abdomen after this operation and makes you feel not good. And, uh, you would have to get that fluid drained out. And then depending on how severe it is, sometimes you, you have to be put on a either completely shut down where you can't eat anything other than maybe, you know, drinking some things just to keep yourself hydrated and then put on something called TPN, which is a form of nutrition that get, that gets put in through your veins. Um, and so you kind of shut down the diet, get nourished through, through, uh, your, through the veins uh, to seal off this leak. That's kind of the worst case scenario. And there's some kind of refractory cases where very rarely some other things have to be done. Um, but the whole diet question centers around trying to avoid this. Um, this again, I think comes, 
back to, to experience. I think um, the risk of Kyla societies is a little bit volume dependent. So the more that this operation is done, you, you uh, have a lower incidence of having Kyla societies. Um, and, and so maybe, for example, here in Indiana, we, you know, ahead of time, we don't have you eat a high fat diet and we're not as strict saying, you know, don't eat any fat, uh, afterwards, uh, because our risk of Kyle societies is, is low. Um, although that being said, we certainly have patients that develop it. Um, um, and so, um, you know, I think, uh, it's a conservative way to, to, to do it. If you said, um, you know, you have to have a no fat diet for, you know, X amount of weeks, or you can't eat nuts or popcorn for a year. I think that's a super conservative, um, approach. Um, I don't know if it's, it's not wrong. I mean, you're trying to, you know, prevent the patient from having a problem. Um, but I think that's kind of explains why you see so much variation where I, you know, I think, here at Indiana, we're not going to tell you not to eat those things for a year. Do I want you going home in the first week or two and eating Big Macs and, and pizza? Uh, no, I don't want you doing that either. Um, I, but I'm not going to tell you that you have to be on a zero fat diet. Um, and I don't think my partner would either, uh, Tim Masterson, but, um, um, so it kind of centers around that. I think it, it involves what's your risk of developing college societies. Um, um, we don't here, we don't want you going home and in that first, you know, four weeks of surgery, you know, piling in a bunch of high fat foods, but at the same time, we're not going to torture you with a zero fat diet just because our incidence is low. Um, but on the other end, I think other folks are just being conservative and, and, um, again, speaks to, um, uh, back to what we talked about. It's just, uh, there's a lot of variability, um, when, when, uh, something is not common. That was not my question, but it does answer. I did have that question because I did not remember being told anything about a diet. And I think because you did it and you said you had the low incidence of, of the side effect, maybe it wasn't a risk for me. I don't remember what I ate. I'm not going to say it wasn't a big Mac. It probably wasn't a big Mac, but I definitely had some chocolate. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, I, I don't want to say we don't have anything happen because we certainly have patients that, that complications happen to, but, um, you know, it, it, and I don't know. I mean, it, it can be a pretty, I mean, if you put someone on a zero fat diet, that's a very restrictive diet, obviously. And, and, um, you know, recovering from surgery, um, is, you know, it's, it's a big enough deal. And then, then you, you know, on a zero fat diet, um, I just feel like for the, the majority of patients don't need to do that. And so I don't want to torture everybody with that fat, low fat diet or zero fat diet um, when only a small number is even going to develop. And then those that it does develop in, we can um, deal with that and get you through that if, if that were to happen to that group of people. That question you kind of answered with a um, touching on a side effect. This last question that I have from the support group before I want to talk side effects in general is what is the percentage of those having RPL and D having post healing small bowel obstructions parentheses? This is due to surgical adhesions, a byproduct of the incision and area being worked on. I had a few SBOs about three or so years after the original surgery, not fun and not talked about. Yeah, it's, um, it's not a common thing. Um, at least in our experience, um, uh, I would say generally what, what we would quote that risk of is about, you know, there's maybe a 1% lifetime risk of having a small bowel obstruction after something like that. Um, you know, some of that is, it's a little bit hard to estimate, you know, cause we may not, you know, uh, you know, we may not see someone again, uh, or hear back from their referring doctors, let's say five years after their operation. And so if it happened, you know, if you get a small bowel obstruction 10 years later, we may not ever know about it. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that, um, I would say at least from the, from what we know, it, it happens, but it is a very low event. Um, um, and so, 
uh, now that I say that I'll probably hear, uh, and either in TCAF or, or from through this, somehow through this Avenue about all the small bowel obstructions that have <laughs> happened. But, um, but it, it, it's certainly, I mean, anytime you have an, a, a surgery inside your abdomen, that's going to be a risk. But I would say in general, um, that particular risk is, is one of the lowest that can happen. Let's talk side effects in general. Um, because I know that I had some weird ones, uh, that I guess are common and you pointed them out that they would happen, but like gas pains in my shoulder was something that I had and like, um, pain in my like thigh. So, and then any, anything else that is common. Yeah. I mean, I would say, um, you know, certainly in the first several weeks after surgery, there, there can be some, you know, some, some GI just, you know, you get bloated or, or have these gas pains and things like that. Um, uh, personally, I've had a lot of patients that don't do well with taking in a lot of milk right away or, or taking in a lot of red meat right away. I don't know for whatever reason, those two food items seem to, to bother people quite a bit. Maybe it has to do with some of the fat content. Um, uh, uh, the leg pain is very common um, in the, in the thigh, um, usually it goes down about the level of the knee. Uh, most patients do not experience it while they're in the hospital. Um, it usually happens seven, 10 days once they're home. Um, um, it goes away or at least the vast majority of them, it goes away. Sometimes it can take a month. Sometimes it can take three months. Um, sometimes you will have still have some kind of numbness to the touch, um, in the thigh. Um, I would say it for people that don't have a nerve sparing procedure on that primary side, it seems to be more intense. If you have a nerve sparing procedure, it seems to be less, uh, either you don't have it or it's less of a noticeable issue for you. Um, so I think, I think it's a little bit related to how aggressive you have to be with doing the surgery. Um, uh, and it just kind of radiates down the legs and some of the nerves up near the spine where you're doing the surgery. I think, uh, that's most, the most common reason why it happens. Um, but it, it happens in a, in a, in a good, uh, uh, certainly in the post chemotherapy setting where you're not able to spare nerves on some people. You mentioned a big thing, nerve sparing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, so the, the nerves, uh, so some people get a little bit confused about what these nerves do. Um, so these nerves control the process of ejaculation. Um, so, so the fluid and sperm coming out, that's the time of an orgasm. They have nothing to do with the ability to get an erection. Um, obviously have intercourse and the ability to, to have that sensation of an orgasm. They don't control that at all. Um, and I think some people get confused about that and there may be even some confusing things online about that. Um, so they only control that process of the sperm coming out. So an orgasm, so the fluid coming out. So if, if you don't have any nerves anymore, um, after surgery, it, it, it just means that you can still have, um, an orgasm, just nothing comes out. So you can refer to that as a dry ejaculation. Um, obviously if fertility is still important, uh, then that is something needs to be discussed on the front end. If number one, if it's technically feasible to spare the nerves and kind of what that means, if you can't, um, if it's not technically feasible, then, then banking sperm is a, is a very viable option. Um, that does have a cost to it. Um, but, uh, but for certain people that is a very appropriate thing to do. Um, uh, depending on where you are in kind of the child planning process, um, uh, nerve sparing, um, uh, can happen with, uh, those primary or, or virgin RP LNDs where you haven't had chemotherapy, um, in the post chemotherapy setting, it, it really depends on how much the volume of disease you had before you get chemotherapy, uh, and how much scarring happens with chemotherapy and the shrinkage of the of the uh, tumors. Uh, sometimes there's a, there's so much scar tissue. It's so intense of a reaction that you can't separate the nerves from, uh, from the, 
masses and, and lymph nodes that you're taking out. Um, and if you can't, then that process will happen that we talked about that we just described. Um, and even if you save the nerves, but you have to manipulate them to move them out of the way, sometimes there is a delay in the recovery. Uh, sometimes um, ejaculation happens right away. Uh, sometimes uh, the nerves have to go through a period of recovery process. Um, and sometimes that can be as long as 12 months. It just depends on how much manipulation had to happen there. Interesting. That is, I mean, it's crazy that, the, you know, you, the average Joe wouldn't think that those nerves are in, in there and would, would be affected, you know, in your abdomen. But as you and a lot of people know, they are. Yeah. And that, that also comes back to experience too, right? I mean, these, um, obviously number one, you got to be able to recognize where they are. Number two, you got to be able to separate them from the lymphatic tissue. Um, and number three, you got to be able to not manipulate them too much where they won't recover. So, um, and that comes down to just having the, the repetitions of doing it to, to get that skill set where it needs to be. All right. Well, I've had you for a long time. I don't want to keep you much longer. Is there anything else about the RPL and D that, that you want people to know that we didn't talk about? I honestly, the questions that you had that you'd gotten from, uh, folks, uh, I thought were excellent. Uh, they covered a lot of points. A lot of the, a lot of these things I talk about in clinic, uh, with patients, um, ahead of time when, when we're talking about this operation, I mean, it was, this was a little bit, um, uh, a little bit like a clinic visit for the most part. I mean, we talked about a lot of issues that are important. Um, and, um, I, I think these were excellent. I, I don't know if I have a whole lot additional to add. Um, uh, and so, so yeah, I think, I think this was a good, a good time. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I promise I can read. I don't know why I struggled so much with reading some of those questions, but maybe it's, I'm going to blame it on my printer, barely printing the, uh, ink. I promise I can read though. No, you're, you're a high pressure environment. You got people that are, they're relying on you to read their questions, man. You got to get it right. You're doing a good job. Okay. We'll blame it on that too. Hey, thanks Dr. <laughs> Gary for being here. You, you're a superhero to so many and I uh, appreciate your time. Uh, thanks as always. Again, I, I, uh, I enjoy doing this. I, you know, the, the times when I am able to talk to, to you and, and everyone else at some of these meetings to hear the experiences. I mean, I, I continue to learn. Um, I mean, hearing, you know, every time I'm around these meetings that, that, uh, TCAF has, um, I feel like I learned something new from a patient perspective because obviously I, you know, I know a lot obviously from the medical side and surgical side of things, but to hear it on an individual level, uh, sometimes things I've never heard patients describe or things like that. So, uh, uh, like I always say, I learned just as much, um, from you guys as, as, uh, you're learning from, from hearing us talk. Well, that is great. I thank you so much again. Yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate the time. For more information and resources for your testicular cancer journey, visit testiculacancerawarenessfoundation.org. You can also follow us on social media at Testis Cancer. We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.